Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Ponte Vista, Colorado. You're listening to Solace Radio. I just want to say it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, the reason that I wasn't here last night is, I don't know if you heard, there, there was some bad weather in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and that's where I had to fly to from Chattanooga, so they canceled our flight. Of course, in Chattanooga, you know, if it comes a good stiff wind, they look, they look for excuses to cancel flights. So, But anyway, that's kind of what happened there. Uh, and about the TBN thing, don't hold that against me, all right? <laughs> and... Uh, but uh, for those of you that perhaps uh, don't know anything about me, l- let me just say that one of, one of the things that I do, um, let me rephrase this. One of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm not going so much into Messianic and Hebraic Roots congregations, although I am, but actually I go into more churches than I do Messianic or Hebraic Roots congregations. And here's the reason, because that's where the fish are. All right? Because just like, well, how many of you have been in the Hebraic Roots movement more than 10 years? Raise your hands. Raise your hands high. There's my point. Because every one of you, every one of us at one point or another, we were in those churches, we were sitting in those pews, and we were sitting around going, I don't know what's wrong with me, but this doesn't seem right. There's something missing here. Right? Amen. Guess what? There's a lot more people out there just like you. You, the Father just saw fit to use you and I and some of us, you know, as the initial... What's the word I'm looking for? The advanced team, if you will. The, the reconnaissance team. The scouts. But there's more to follow. And those most of those people are in churches. They're sitting in church pews. And will be in the morning. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is to go in and, and, and whether that be through you know, being on a television program and sitting next to people that uh, when I say things, their head spins around. <laughs> they clutch their chest and... All these kinds of things. I'm finding that there is more and more and more and more this message sovereignly, not because of me or Brad or Monty or anybody else for that matter, because there is no person who can say, I started this. This is something that the Father sovereignly is birthing in people throughout North America and throughout the world. People, you know, I mean, I would have never thought that I would have come to a small farming community in Saskatchewan. Did I say that correctly? And this many people be here on Shabbat. I mean, I've gone, and I think Brad could probably validate this too, I've gone to huge cities where you can't get this many people together on Shabbat morning. So, all right, well, enough of that. What I'm going to do is, and and I didn't ask, how long do we want to go here this morning? Hour and a half, all right. Well, I may not go that far, but if I do, I do. But we'll we'll limit it to an hour and a half. But um, what I want to do this morning is just begin to kind of lay a foundation, if you will, for what we're going to uh, continue with on uh, this evening. And my message is, I'm I'm calling it the Joseph Factor. Now, some of you, if you were at Sukkot or if you've obtained the... um, the audio CDs or whatever from Sukkot, maybe you've heard some of this message. But um, for those of you who haven't, I think it's very important because this is a message that for me anyway, kind of helps explain some things for me personally, why I feel certain ways about certain things, my frustrations, etc. But it's also a message that a lot of those church people that I was referring to just a while ago can identify with. Now, I want you to begin with me though in Romans chapter 8. 
Do I have this mic sitting too high, Justin? Or is it okay? All right. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to begin to read around verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So a couple of things I want to point out here, first of all, is that Paul talks about how you and I, now he speaks to us, how we sense, we know in our spirit we're children of God, and it's the Spirit of God within us that's, that's teaching us this, that's bearing witness with our own spirit. And then he goes on and talks about how that this, what you and I are sensing, if you'll allow me to put it this way, the very creation is yearning for it to be revealed. And I'm going to suggest to you that when Paul writes this, to some degree, what he's talking about is what you and I are experiencing right now to come into the realization of who we really are in Messiah. When I ask how many of you have been part of this movement for more than ten years, I think two or three people raise their hands. So that proves to me that there is something in the last few years that has been revealed to you that you never saw before. And how did it make you feel? What, what, what process did you go through, or maybe I should say are going through, in this revelation as you become is you understand more and more about who you truly are in Messiah, what it truly means to be saved, and to understand that we're not just this other group over here as a sidebar to what God did through history, but we're part of that group, we're part of that family, partakers of those covenants and all those promises. We are Israelites just as surely as those who we read about in the Scripture, but because of Messiah. And it is that understanding, that process of being, this, these things being revealed, that the creation itself is actually groaning, expecting this revelation to occur. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about how that um, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption 
and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. We all know that the earth is corrupt. But why is the earth corrupt? It's because man corrupted his, his self. Man corrupted his way in the earth. This goes back to the book of Rashid in Genesis chapter 6. You can read about it in the days prior to the flood because the sons of God took the daughters of men because they were lovely and they took wives of all whom they chose. And this mingling of these two seeds, if you will, not only did it corrupt their offspring, not only did it corrupt the fruit, if you will, but you read in Genesis 6 verse 11 that the earth also was corrupt because of the wickedness of man. And this just goes back to the principles that we find in the Torah, Leviticus 19.19, Deuteronomy 22.9, the laws of kilayim or forbidden mixtures. You don't mix uh, two different types of seed. You don't mingle uh, you know, the gender, um, different livestock and things like this. There are things that are forbidden to be mixed. You don't mingle the holy and profane because when you do that, the end result, according to the Torah, is corruption. And so the earth itself has been corrupted because mankind has mixed the holy and the profane. But you and I are in a process right now of understanding more completely, I believe, what it means to be separate, to be holy. Because God, when He brought Israel out of Egypt, when He saved them, what did they do in order to be saved? This is where you get involved, class. <laughs> Nothing. They were slaves. They couldn't do anything. Well, except trust. Trust in the Word of the Lord that that blood of that lamb was going to keep them from the destruction that was moving through the land. And so they placed their trust in the blood of a lamb, and because they believed the Word of God, He saved them. And then he brings them in Exodus 19, he brings them to Sinai and he says to Moses to tell them, see how I brought you unto myself upon eagle's wings. And so now, if you'll obey my commandments, if you'll keep my covenant, you're going to be a peculiar treasure unto me. A holy nation, a kingdom of priests. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be, to emulate him, to do what he says do. To abstain from what He says to abstain from. And so you and I are in the process of understanding more completely what it truly means to be a child of God. It's to emulate our Father, to follow His ways, to follow His commandments. And it affects every aspect of our life. And this, to some degree, I believe this process you and I are experiencing, to some degree, this is what Paul is referring to here. And that the very creation is groaning anticipating that these sons of God are going to be revealed. Now, that's one other thing I want to point out here. If something is, is to be revealed, what does that infer? It was hidden. It has to be hidden first before it can be revealed. And so, that's really what we're going to concentrate on this morning, is the idea that God does, has, is, He conceals things. He hides things. And it's not, you know, it's not that uh, he doesn't want them to be discovered, but to the contrary. He hides them because he does want them to be discovered. And so with that, if you will, I want you to turn over with me now to Proverbs 25. And this is a this is a portion of scripture that I use quite a bit actually. Because I believe if, if we can understand this, this concept, if you will, 
it kind of uh, helps us and aids us as we go through and try to understand the Scriptures and other aspects. But in Proverbs 25, 2, I don't know how well everybody can read that, but anyway, it said, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings or the honor of kings to search out a matter or words to that effect. So there's three different words here I want to talk about. First of all, conceal. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. The, the root word is satar, samaktarish, satar, and it means to hide, to conceal. And this is something I learned from my buddy over here, Brad. Satar actually infers the reason it's being hidden. What did you do? He said he was making fun of me last night. I'm going to have to find out details about that later. <laughs> That's all right. I'll make fun of him later. Uh, satar means that you hide something actually with the idea of provoking someone to look for it. Like when we were children. And you play hide and seek. And you go out and you find a good place to hide. Now, how fun is it to hide and not have anyone seeking? <laughs> Kind of defeats the purpose of the game, doesn't it? And I can remember a couple of times that I hid so good, nobody could find me, and I got bored and said, hey, here I am, you know. <laughs> That's the idea behind this word. It's something is concealed, something is hidden, but it's with the idea of provoking you and I to look for it. Now, um, there are, that's the positive connotation of this word. There are negative connotations as well that maybe we'll get into sometime during this weekend. But at any rate, you hide something, you conceal something with the idea of it's going to provoke someone to look for it. And thus the Messiah says, Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. Seek, and you shall find. But you've got to seek. You've got to look. In fact, it says the honor of kings is to search out a matter. The Hebrew phrase that is translated to search out implies digging. Implies work. If I told you all, that there was a gazillion dollars buried somewhere out there in that field, I'm sure there would be a mass exodus out of here. Somebody would go getting shovels, heavy equipment. I know it's Shabbat, but if I told you a gazillion dollars was out there, some of you would be tempted to go dig out in that field till you could find it. And the point is, is treasure is never left lying on the surface of the ground. Right? Treasure is always concealed beneath the surface. And so it is, I believe, with the Word of God. And it's not to take away from the surface of the text, no. But it is to understand that beneath the surface of the text, there are treasures. There, there is a, a fathomless mine of treasure to be that we can discover if we look for it. And so that's why it says it is the honor or glory of kings to search out a matter, to dig to go beneath the surface to try to find those things that God has concealed. In fact, He concealed them to provoke you and I to dig. And what is He hiding? That is revealed in the word devar. And I know that a lot of you know what devar means. Somebody tell me? Besides Brad? Devar means word. Word. In fact, in Hebrew it says, it is the glory of God to conceal a devar, but it is the honor of kings to search out davar. It is the glory of God to conceal a word. It is the honor of kings to search out that word. 
So he hides that word in order to provoke you and I to look for that word. He wants us to find it. But we're going to have to dig. Now, where do you think God would conceal a word? In His Word. And we've all experienced this from one time or another. You know, you're looking at that passage that maybe you've read it, I don't know, a hundred times. And one day you're reading it and something just leaps off the page and smacks you upside the head and you go, I never saw that before. Has that ever happened to you before? That's what I'm talking about. And who revealed it to you? The Spirit of God revealed it to you. And that's the way it works. Because ultimately, it is the Spirit of truth who is going to teach us of what the Word of truth really says. The Spirit of truth is going to speak in concert with the Word of truth. And so the Spirit of God is going to help us to teach us these things that God has concealed within His Word. So, first thing I want you to, to, to understand that God does hide things. God does conceal things. But the reason He does it is so that it will be found. Because when it's found, something big happens. Alright? Now, go with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be jumping around here a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want to introduce a second concept or idea to you. And that is that these things that God conceals whether it be a word or whatever it may be, it is not going to be revealed until it's time for it to be revealed. It's not going to be premature. It's not going to be late. But it's going to be revealed exactly when it needs to be revealed. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, just begin at verse 1. It says, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, For I determined not to know anything among you except Yeshua the Messiah and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my my speech and my preaching were not with, with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. And of course, a mystery is understood to be something that was hidden, but now it's it's coming to light. Something that has been hidden, you didn't understand it, but now uh, revelation is coming. It's, it's, it's coming to the surface. And then he goes on to say, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages, and why did He... Uh, hide this wisdom before the ages for our glory, for our benefit. In fact, I, I'm of the personal opinion that what Paul is talking about here actually relates back to just what we read in Proverbs 25 too. So there is this hidden wisdom of God that was ordained before the ages and for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, the mystery of mysteries is that God becomes flesh, dies on a tree, is buried, and three days later is resurrected from that tomb. Because no one, and this is what Paul is getting at, no one saw it. No one anticipated it. Because had they anticipated it, had they seen it, had they deciphered it, they would have not allowed it to happen. And if He's not crucified, then He's not buried. And if He's not buried, He's not resurrected. And if He's not resurrected, then where does that leave you and I? 
yet in our sin. So my point is this, or question is this, in your opinion, how important is it that those things that God has concealed remain concealed until it's time for them to be revealed? It's of the utmost importance that these secret things remain secret, remain concealed until it is the time for them to be revealed. Because, and his point here is, had men been able to decipher the Messiah and all the things that we just mentioned, they would have not permitted it to happen and the ramifications are disastrous as far as you and I are concerned. Now, this, in spite of the fact that from the very beginning of Scripture, we can go back and through the Tanakh, we can find the Messiah, we can find God becoming flesh, we can find Him dying, we can find Him being resurrected and all these things. And in fact, He even told His disciples... Son of man is going to be delivered up, but three days he will rise again. And they still didn't get it. Right? I mean, how many times did he tell them this? And they still didn't see it. They still didn't understand it. And why? Because it wasn't time for it to be revealed. It wasn't time for it to be understood. Two of his disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection, scratching their heads as to what has transpired. They still don't understand what's going on. And they meet this stranger on the road who asks them what's going on and they're relating all these things to him and it comes to a point they said, you know, if I can paraphrase, we hear that he's not there anymore and we just don't know what to think. We don't know what's going on. What did the Messiah say? Why are you so slow to believe all that's been written? And so beginning at Moses, the Torah, and the prophets, he began to expound to them all the things that were written of him. It had always been there. You and I can go back in the Scripture, in Genesis, and all these other books, and we can see the Messiah plainly, can't we? But they didn't see it. And we'd like to think that, oh, if I'd been there, I would have seen it, I would have figured it out. No, you wouldn't have. You would not have, and here's why, because it wasn't time. But when it was time for it to be revealed, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. So the second concept or idea I want you to to latch on to here is, well, number one, God does hide things. God does conceal things with the idea and for the purpose of them being found. But He does not allow these concealed things to be revealed until it's time for them to be revealed. So perhaps maybe some of you are already thinking, is that why I didn't see this 25 years ago? Because I have a lot of people asking that question, you know. I wish I had, I wish I had seen this. How come God didn't allow me to see this so many years ago? Because it wasn't time. But if we are pre- being permitted to understand this now, what does that mean? <laughs> it's time. It's the fullness of time. All right, everybody with me? All right. Where do we want to go from here? Let's go to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 and beginning around verse 8. It says, Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And in a manner of speaking, he says, and to prove it, to validate what I'm saying, I'm the only one who can, in verse 10, declare from the beginning the end 
and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. If it's the fullness of time, and I believe it is, does anyone else agree with me on that? <laughs> I believe this is it. Now how long it takes to, to unfold and to come to a complete consummation, I won't pretend to know, but I do believe that I will see it. I believe it'll be in my lifetime. I really, with all my heart, I believe that. And so, if we're living in the consummation of all things, or the restoration of all things, if this is the fullness of time in that sense, if things that God has kept hidden are now being revealed, then it's of particular interest to me if I'm living in that particular time. In other words, if I'm in the end, I want to understand these things. And it is the Spirit of God who is going to ultimately teach me these things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, when what we were just reading, when Paul talks about you know the the uh, the wisdom that God foreordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age known had had they known they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. He goes on to say, because as it is written, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it hasn't entered into the hearts of of men what God has prepared for those who love Him. And then he goes on to say, but it's the Spirit of God that reveals these things. Yes, the deep things of God. It's not going to be, it's not going to be Bill Cloud or Brad Scott or Monty Judah or Ed Chumney or, or Oral Roberts or Billy Graham or, or Rabbi so and so. Those are not going to be the folks that are going to reveal these things. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that ultimately reveals these things to us. And by the way, when, you know, my, my background's Pentecostal. I grew up, you know, Church of God, South Georgia, tongue talking, bobby pins flying everywhere, you know, things like that. <laughs> That's, that's my background. And <laughs> well, you've seen that, hadn't you? <laughs> I know this one woman when I was growing up, man, she used to scare me to death. When she'd get happy, you know, when the when she'd feel the spirit. She'd be sitting on the front row and she'd just let out this blood-curdling scream out of nowhere. And as a kid, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, there's a demon loose or something. You know, people stacked up like cordwood, you know, just... That's my background. And, and inevitably, uh, almost every Sunday, the preacher would say something about when we get to heaven. You know, how things are going to be when we get to heaven. When we go through the pearly gates and stroll the streets of gold. And then he'd say, because eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him when we get to heaven. You ever heard that? If you'll notice, when Paul quotes the prophet, he doesn't say anything about heaven. He's talking about that in that book that you're reading. There are things that your eye hasn't seen yet. There are things that your ear hasn't heard yet. There are things in there that hasn't even entered into your heart that God has prepared for those who love Him. But the Spirit will reveal those hidden things to us when it's time. Now, going back to this idea in Isaiah, not this idea, this truth in Isaiah 46, that God has from the very beginning revealed the end. He has revealed these hidden things all the way back in the beginning. So in particular, what I want to look at is this. Can we find in the beginning people who love God, who come to the realization that not everything that they've been partaking of 
not everything that they have believed in. Some things they've had to rearrange their theology about as they come more and more to understand what is really the truth. Can we find this in the beginning? Because we certainly have it in the end. And your testimony, your presence here today is testimony to that fact. So can we find that in the beginning? And I believe we can. And as a matter of fact, I believe it's going to be found in the story of Joseph. But before we go and read about Joseph, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 81. Like I said, we're just going to be kind of jumping around here. I hope that's all right. Okay, I am. And that's a dangerous thought, you know. Psalm 81, verse 1, Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant heart with the lute. Now, before I go any further, I want to suggest to you that this is not a funeral dirge. Alright? This is a joyous occasion here. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. Now, so we're told to blow a shofar, blow a trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. Now, <clears throat> the, the word that is translated solemn feast day is chag. Chag. And chag is describing the three pilgrimage feasts. Which? Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Alright? In this context, it's describing the pilgrimage feasts. So my point is this. The time that the psalmist is referring to has to be during one of those three pilgrimage feasts. In the spring at Passover, in the spring, later spring, in Shavuot, or in the fall at Sukkot. Now, he clears it up a little bit more when he talks about the new moon and the full moon. Because of those three pilgrimage feasts, only two of them occur on a full moon. Which two? Pesach and Sukkot. So we eliminate, he, he's not talking about the time of Shavuot, in other words. Alright? So it's got, he's probably referring to either the time of Pesach or the time of Sukkot. But then he talks about blowing the shofar on the new moon and the full moon on our solemn feast day. Now, there's only one of the Moedim, one of the appointed times where you blow a shofar on the new moon. In other words, there's only one of the Moedim that occurs on a new moon. Right? Yom Teruah. Feast of Trumpets. And after, when you have Yom Teruah, two weeks later, what do you have? A full moon and Sukkot. So, I'm going to suggest to you that the psalmist actually is talking about a particular time as far as the Moedim go. As far as the feasts go. Now, again, I have to borrow from my brother over here something he taught one time, and, and, and it just kind of fit in so nicely with what I want to talk about here. I'm sure that we've all seen Brad teach about this idea here, right? Linear versus cyclical, right? Nod your head, even, you know, make him feel better. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not going to try to, to teach his message, but here's what I want to point out. We understand that things don't work this way. Because if things work this way, then we have dispensations, right? And you know what dispensations do, right? They dispense with, you know, 
things that have come before. In other words, God does away with this. It took God, in other words, this teaches that it took God 4,000 years to figure out what He was trying to do. Right? I mean, that's, that's basically what it says. They wouldn't dare say that, but that's what they're saying. Okay? So we understand that things are to be understood cyclically. And so, and, and to borrow again from Brad, you know, he, he, uh, uh, makes the point of how Psalm 23 talks about that he leads us in cycles of righteousness. The word path is translated, should be translated as cycles or circuits, if you will. And that, that word actually, you're carrying it on back, it's an entrenched circle, inferring to me that it is a cycle that has been walked many, many, many times. I mean, to get this idea across, imagine your favorite chair in the living room. You got it pictured in your mind? Now imagine the refrigerator door. And the path that connects your favorite chair to the refrigerator. And if you got carpet, what do you have? You can see that path that has been tread many, many times before. Don't look at me like that. I know you do it too. The idea behind it is it is a path that has been tread many times before. It's not a rut, but it is something that it... In other words, it's this. When we go around that cycle, we're going to see something each time that we didn't see before. If I was walking a path that was circular in nature, and I saw this particular tree, every time I go past that tree, I'm probably going to notice something that I didn't notice before. And by the time I've walked around that circuit several times, I got a pretty good idea what that tree looks like with all its features and all its unique characteristics. And just because I learned something this trip that I didn't know the trip before doesn't mean that I dispense with and get rid of those things that I learned before. I build upon those things. More things that were concealed before are now being revealed simply because I stay on that path that God has prepared for me. Amen. All right? I see things that I didn't see before. I just didn't notice them. But for some reason on this trip around, I noticed something about that tree I didn't see before. And it's intended to give us a very, a very clear picture of what that tree is. And so we understand that we are not to look at Scripture and theology, prophecy, as being as working in this manner, but is working in this manner. Because let's, let's bring it to the, the, uh, the field of prophecy, if you will. If, if things were to work this way, and we have a prophecy that occurs here, and humanity has already moved over here, are we ever going to see that prophecy again? But if it is, as Brad has taught us, cyclical, and a prophecy occurs here, and humanity continues around this cycle, are we going to see this prophecy again? And again? And again, for instance, Hosea 11, verse 1, God talks about how Israel is his son and out of Egypt I have called my son. And the first thing that pops in our mind, typically when we think of that, that particular prophecy, is going back to when Moshe led the children of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, one of the things that he told Pharaoh when he first appeared before him, that Israel is my firstborn, Israel is my son. And out of Egypt, he called his son. But we also know that in the, the Gospel of Matthew, when Joseph takes Miriam and the infant Messiah down to Egypt to, to escape Herod the Great, that after Herod dies, he's visited in a dream. He's told it's safe to bring the family back to, uh, to, to Israel. 
And Matthew says, thus fulfilling the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. So the understanding is, or what I deduce from this is, this can't be correct. Because if a Hosea 11.1 happened here, it can't happen over here. But if it happened here and we're moving in this way, it can happen again. Amen. And it's going to happen again. Amen. And oh, by the way, when the Messiah says, Aniha alafiatav, he did, you know he didn't say, I'm the Alpha and Omega, right? I mean, why would a Jewish rabbi speak to another Jew in Greek? Doesn't make any sense. I mean, I'm assuming that everybody's first language in here is English. So when God wants to impress something upon me, He's not going to speak to me in, you know, Swahili. He's going to speak to me in English. He's going to impress it upon me in English. Anyway, when he says, I'm the Aleph and the Tav, the first and last beginning and the end, if this were correct, well, you've got the, you've got the Aleph over here and the Tav somewhere out there. They're disconnected. But if he is the Aleph and the Tav, if he's the beginning, he's also the end, he's one and the same. And that's how the end is in the beginning because the end is the beginning. And the beginning is the end. Now, another example of this idea, and, and I'm going to, you know, kind of focus on the prophetic aspect of all this. Another example of this idea that prophecies are not one dimensional. In other words, a lot of people have the idea that once a prophecy is fulfilled, that's it. You can mark that one off the list. And in my book, that is to say that God's word is one dimensional. Now, you and I are three-dimensional beings living in a three-dimensional world. And God transcends that. Are, the, are we then to take His Word and compact it to mean one thing and one thing only? It has one dimension. And I'm not saying it can mean dual or multiple things that disconnect and contradict one another. No, I'm not saying that. But it is multidimensional. It's fathomless. Back to what Paul says, eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't even entered our hearts what God has prepared for those who love Him. Speaking of the things that are to be understood in the Word of God. Another example. There's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12 about this man is going to come, and I mean, you know, a lot of people believe it's talking about the Messiah, and that he is going to set up an abomination that makes desolate. Now, 200 years approximately before the Messiah, there was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a Syrian, who went to, into Israel, and he went into the temple, and he profaned the temple, he set up an image of Zeus, and he sacrificed swine upon the holy altar, and he forbid the keeping of, of uh, Torah, you know, you can't keep Shabbat, and the Kashrut, under the penalty of death. And so when he set up this abomination, it made the holy place desolate. And so Jewish and Christian commentators believe that Antiochus Epiphanes IV was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 11 and 12 about one who would set up an abomination that makes desolate. I agree. He did. However, if you read in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 24, the Messiah says, and when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, flee into the wilderness. But you'll also notice that in the middle of that statement, that Matthew makes a parenthetical statement. He says, let him who reads understand. Now, why do you think that Matthew makes a parenthetical statement in the midst of what Messiah is saying? It's because 
even in the first century, even in Messiah's time, there were those who believed that the prophecy of about the abomination that makes desolate had already been fulfilled. And it had. But the Messiah was simply saying, even though it's been, it's happened, it's going to happen again. Why? Because, as Brad has so brilliantly pointed out to us, things are not to be understood linearly, but cyclically. It's going to happen again and again. Ecclesiastes 3.15 to paraphrase says, if you want to understand what's happening today, if you want to understand what's going to happen tomorrow, then you've got to understand what happened yesterday. Because it's the Father who is ultimately responsible for causing these things from yesterday to, in a sense, reappear today. Now, that's paraphrasing, but that's the concept, the idea it's getting across to us. So, well, with all of that in mind, what I want to begin to do now is uh, going to go back to the beginning. And we're going to see if there's something that was hidden there. No, I'm sorry, we're not going to go back there yet. We're still talking about Psalm 81. I got off track. Psalm 81. I'm sorry, I never did finish. Do you do that too? Do you just go down a rabbi trail and never find your way back? All right, back to Psalm 81. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, on our solemn feast day. And so as what I was going to say was, I'm suggesting to you that the particular time in the Moedim cycle that the psalmist is referring to is the one that comes at the end of the cycle. Sukkot. That's the full moon. The new moon is what? Yom Teruah. And so Yom Teruah speaks of us, speaks to us of the coronation of the king, the resurrection. Sukkot speaks to us of the kingdom. All these things that occur at the end. Alright? Now, the moon, we gotta talk about that for just a moment. And I know that you guys have all gotten a lot of good teaching or very learned, but just, you know, in case there's a few people who some of this is all kind of new to, I wanna talk about the lunar cycle briefly. And first we've got to understand the difference between, we're going to talk about the new moon and full moon and the, the phases of the moon and, and this cycle that takes about 28, 29 days. <clears throat> when we have a new moon today, when most people talk about the new moon as far as, you know, in our calendars and things, typically it's an astronomical new moon. But there is a difference between an astronomical new moon and a biblical new moon. An astronomical new moon, let's see. I'll get it right here in a second. Okay. You didn't know you were going to have science this morning, did you? Here's the sun, here's the earth, and here is the moon revolving around the earth. The moon does not rotate on its axis. The same side of the moon always faces the sun, and the other side always faces the earth. And so, when the moon revolves around the earth, when it comes into what is called conjunction, that is what is called an astronomical new moon. And this is when the, the light of the sun so overpowers the moon that the moon disappears. You and I can't see it. And that is an astronomical new moon. Now, after the moon goes into conjunction, typically it will reappear after 2.5 days. In other words, it will reappear on the third day. Okay? So the moon disappears, it's hidden, it's concealed, and typically it will reappear on the third day, and that's when you see that first little thumbnail of light up in the sky. 
when you see that first little thumbnail of light up in the sky, that is a biblical new moon. And that's when you would blow the shofar to announce the beginning of the month. And two or more witnesses had to see this. Now, but here's, here's what I want you to really get a hold of. The moon disappears, and typically after 2.5 days or on the third day, that that was hidden will reappear. It will resurrect, if you will. Okay? Now, the moon is a heavenly body that is incapable of generating its own light. It can merely reflect the light of the sun. And so when we look up into the night sky, we don't see the light of the moon. We see the light of the sun being reflected off of the face of the moon. And as it goes through this process, beginning with the biblical, what we will call the biblical new moon, it goes through this process, of, and then two weeks later, it's going to be a full moon. And so with each passing night, we're going to have more and more light down here on earth. In other words, when we have a new moon, a biblical new moon, there's very little light. We can see the light in the sky, but there's very little light down here on earth, right? But with each passing day, we're going to see more and more light of the sun being reflected down here to earth until we get to a full moon. And at that point, well, I can walk outside if it's a clear night. I can walk outside, walk around and maneuver in the dark without aid of a flashlight or a lantern because the light of the sun is being reflected back down to the earth off of the face of the moon. It's as if the moon is looking directly into the face of the sun. That happens on a full moon. Now, this is when it disappears, and then it's going to revolve around the earth, and typically on the third day, it's going to reappear until it gets over on this side of the earth here, and that's when we see a full moon. Now, when, when we have a full moon, what happens down here on earth? Well, that's when people grow hair, fangs, you know, long fingernails. Women have to be rushed to the hospital to give birth. But what happens down here on earth? What does it affect? It affects the tides. In fact, in the phases of the moon, it's at a new moon and at a full moon that the moon has the most direct impact on the seas and in the tides. Now, in the Bible, the seas are often used to personify what? Peoples, the nations. So what we have a picture here is of a heavenly body that does not generate its own light, but is, is intended to reflect the light of the sun. And as it reflects the light of the sun, what does it do? It impacts the nations. And how does it impact the nations? Well, the shifting tides. When the high tide is up, that's when most of the surface of the earth is covered. Right? In other words, that's when most of the earth is concealed. But when the tides move out, that which was hidden is revealed. And what's accomplishing this? That heavenly body up there that is reflecting the light of the sun. You're tracking with me, aren't you? Okay. Now, we're to blow the shofar to call attention to this. And I'll again suggest to you that in specifically the psalmist is referring to the solemn feast days that occur at the end of the cycle. In other words, I'm suggesting to you that this is a psalm that if we dig beneath the surface, is speaking to those of us who are living here in the fullness of time, at the end of the age. We're to be, we're, we're being called to pay attention to this idea of things that were hidden are reappearing 
They're being resurrected. They're being renewed. In fact, that's the word Chadash. We get Rosh Chodesh, the head of the month, from Chadash. Because the moon will Chadash. It'll be renewed every 28 to 30 days. And of course, we get from, from Chadash, we get Chadasha. As in, this cup is the cup of the Brit Chadasha Bedami. The renewed covenant in my blood. So, the moon is going to teach us, and specifically, I believe, those of us who are living at the age, in the, at the end of the age, that on the third day, something that has been hidden is going to reemerge. It's going to reappear. It's going to begin, begin the, I, the process of being revealed. And with each passing day, more and more and more is going to be seen. More and more is going to be understood. And it's going to lead us directly up until the time when the moon is able to look directly into the face of the sun. And what is this going to do? It's going to impact the nations, the seas. When you go out to the ocean, of course, I don't guess you do that too much around here. <laughs> but when you go out to the seashore, what do you see? The sea. That's right. Right answer. You see the sea. And you see the white caps and you see the, the, the waves and you see the water out there. But we all know that there's a world that exists beneath those waves. Right? A concealed world, if you will. And yet you know it's there. Now, by and large, what lives in the sea? Fish. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Let's read more in Psalm 81. For this is a statute, everything we just described, this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This He established in Joseph as a testimony. In other words... This idea of things being hidden and then being revealed and its revelation, its unveiling, if you will, impacts the nations. Things that were hidden become revealed. It, it, has a, it, it affects the environment in which the fish live, if I can put it that way. All this is established in Joseph specifically. And remember... Those of us who are living at the end of the cycle, the shofar is being sounded to call attention to this fact, to look, in other words, to look to Joseph. Go back and look at Joseph and understand what the Father is trying to get across to us. Is everybody with me? Not bored yet, are you? Still awake back there in the back corner? Barely, okay, alright. No. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Brashit. Let's go to Genesis 41.1. And I'm probably not going to be able to get everything in right now. But we'll get what we can. Genesis 41.1, if you have a Chumash or you have the, the complete Jewish Bible, I've seen several of those around, you should see that Genesis 41.1 begins a, a portion called Miketz. Do you see that? Miketz means at the end. So, if we who are living in the end want to understand the end, where do we go? To the book of Revelations? <laughs> but that's where most people go, right? We're going to have a Bible study on prophecy. We're going to study the book of Revelation. That's what people do. They go to the last book in the Bible and try to understand it, and typically what will happen is they'll come away going, I don't know what's going to happen. The Lord's got it all in control, though. 
It's because they didn't go back and study the book of Rashid or Genesis first. Because you have to understand the book of the beginnings, the other books in the beginning, before you can understand the very last book. Alright? So, in the beginning, in the book of beginnings, we have a Torah portion that is entitled, At the End. And I believe I'm living at the end, and actually I want to study what I'm experiencing right now to see if it can be found in the beginning. And I come to a title called At the End. You know, The point is, I'm going to pay attention to this. I'm going to pay attention because there's something here that is, there's more than meets the eye. There's, I believe, buried treasure. All right? Now, just to kind of give you an example of this, keep your finger in Genesis 41 and go over to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Chava his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again this time his brother Havel, or Abel. Now Havel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, dot, dot, dot. And in this verse is where we begin, uh, where the story begins of how Cain and Abel offer these offerings, the end result that Cain goes out and kills his brother. So we understand that in the beginning, the first murder is basically a religious war between two brothers who call the same man father. Did you get that? In the beginning, the first murder is a religious war between two brothers who call the same man father. That's how it was in the beginning. So according to Isaiah 46, what does that mean? That's how it's going to be in the end. In fact, when it says in verse 3, and it came to pass in the process of time, in literal Hebrew what it says, and it came to pass in the end of days. That's literally what it says. So my point is, is that in the Hebrew text, there are little things here that are hints to us to pay attention to this. So then in Genesis 41 verse 1, and this is my point, if the Torah portion is called itself at the end, I want to pay special attention to this Torah portion to see what is being divulged here to see if it has any, if it pertains to me in any way, to you and I. Now, uh, of course, Genesis 41.1 is going to tell us a portion of jo Joseph's story. But before we read that, I want to go back up a little bit. And let's go back to the beginning of Joseph's story. And we're going to kind of briefly summarize this. First of all, he is the firstborn of Israel of the woman Israel truly loved. Right? He's not the firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn, but he is the firstborn of the woman that Jacob really loved. Now, Reuben, the firstborn, according to Scripture, he, he profanes his father's bed, and as a consequence, the birthright and the blessing that should have been Reuben's goes to who? Goes to Joseph. So Joseph is given the birthright and the blessing. Meaning what? That when Jacob dies, Joseph is the patriarch of the family. Joseph is the one who is in charge of, of maintaining the, the mandate given to this family by God Himself. Joseph is the one that has been entrusted to. And to kind of uh, celebrate this, if you will, or to acknowledge this, what does Jacob give him? He gives him a special coat. Now, in Hebrew, it doesn't say anything about it being multicolored, but through the Septuagint and traditions, it's been handed down to us that it is a multicolored coat. That's what we're going to go with. A multicolored coat that sets him apart from his brethren. And he's a wise young man, the Scripture tells us. Tradition tells us he's a wise acre of a young man. He likes to walk around in his nice little coat and let everybody see his nice little coat and 
know who he is in the family, we understand that he's also a dreamer. Not just any dreamer. I mean, we understand that God is the one who is giving him these dreams. But nevertheless, he shares, uh, the father shares this dream with him, gives him this dream. And the first dream is of 11 sheaves bowing to his one sheaf. And so he gets up in the morning all excited about what God has revealed to him. And he runs out to tell his brethren, expecting that they're going to be just as excited about what has God, God has shown them. And they're going to be, you know, just, you know, so excited for him and, and what happens. Well, they got excited. He has another dream, and in this dream he sees the sun, moon, and eleven stars bowing to his star. Once again, he jumps up. He wants to share this news with his brethren. You know, look at what God has shown me. Let me share it with you. Please listen to me. Thinking they're just going to latch on and go with it. But they don't. In fact, his father even says, and I'm going to paraphrase, what are you saying? That me and your mother and your brothers are supposed to bow down to you? Now, there's an odd thing about that statement that Jacob makes, and it's this. Joseph's mother is dead. So in a sense, he's saying, what are you saying to me and your dead mother and your 11 brothers bow down to you? Now, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest something to you. This is my opinion, you know. You don't have to share this opinion, but it's my opinion that the reason Jacob says this is because the dreams that Joseph has or have, those dreams, yes, pertain to Joseph, but they are not exclusive to Joseph. In other words, the dreams that Joseph has are going to tell us something, they tell us something that's going to happen to Joseph, but more importantly, they're going to point to something that happens to somebody else besides Joseph. In other words, Joseph's life is there to teach us of somebody else. Can you think of anybody? Huh? Yeshua, the Messiah. Of course, Joseph, Joseph is going to point us to the Messiah. Because the Messiah was born like Joseph of a womb that had to be opened miraculously. He was the firstborn and favored of his father. He was set apart from his brethren. You think he had the birthright? <laughs> he had the blessing? But his brothers despised him. They didn't like what he had to say. So they, they put him in a pit. And he was sent to prison falsely accused, only to be elevated to supreme power and to be the one who is in position to see to it that all Israel is saved during a time of tribulation. And he, and only he, chose the time and the place in the manner in which he revealed who he was to his brethren. And there's another part of this story too, but I'll save that for later. So we all understand that Joseph ultimately teaches us and points us to the Messiah. Agreed? How about y'all back here? Y'all agree with me? All right. But, but, if it pertains to the Messiah, I'll suggest to you further that it pertains to the Messiah's body. Galatians 3, He is the seed of Abraham. There is no other seed of Abraham, right? Galatians 3.16, He's the seed of Abraham. There's only one seed of Abraham, not seeds as of many, but as of one who is Messiah. Verse 29 of that same chapter, If you are in Messiah, then you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. So in other words, we understand that we are the seed of Abraham. Right? Because He is the seed of Abraham. Because He is the head of the body. So everything that affects the body is going to emanate from the head. So if Joseph points to the head of the body, by consequence, it also pertains to the body. 
He is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. But we also, if we keep the, covenant, uh, keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, according to Revelation 12.17, we too are the seed of the woman. So what I'm telling you is if it pertains to the Messiah, then it pertains to the body of Messiah. He is the Son of God, is He not? What did we read in Romans 8 just earlier? That it's being revealed who the sons of God are. Right? And how is that possible? Because of the Messiah. So if it pertains to the Messiah, who is the head of the body, by consequence, it pertains to the body of Messiah. So then, if Joseph points us to the Messiah, he also points us and teaches us about the body Messiah. Everybody with me? So the dreams that Joseph is given, they pertain to Joseph, but they pertain first and foremost to the Messiah, but consequently are going to describe and be descriptive of the body of Messiah. And I'll suggest to you as it is in the end. It's a prophetic dream. Now, with, with that in mind, let's, let's think about our situation. Remember the day when it just, the light bulb went on and you saw, you know what? I'm not just in the church and a friend to Israel, but because of the Messiah, I am Israel. And if I'm Israel, then I should start behaving as Israel. And the Shabbat is not for Jews only, it's for me. And the Moedim is not for Jews only, but it's for me. And maybe even more so for me, because I understand that it's ultimately going to point me and take me to the Messiah. You remember that day? And do you remember how excited you were about how God, what God had shown you? You remember that day? And do you remember rushing out to your brother and say, hey, let me share something with you. And do you remember how excited they got? Could it be? That's what I'm saying. Look at Joseph's life, not just pointing to the Messiah, and that's the first thing. That's, you know, that's first and foremost. But it affects us too because we're the body of Messiah. And so, it, I don't think it's, it's, it's not just a coincidence that God showed you something that pertain to you and you in your excitement and in your zeal wanted to rush out and share this good news with your brethren, not the drunk down on the corner, but your brethren sitting next to you in your pew. And what did those brethren do? Well, you're here, aren't you? <laughs> what happened to me, and I'll give you a brief testimony. What happened to me was this. I got. I went to the Feast of Tabernacles in in Israel back in 1990. Uh, long story short, come back wanted to to learn everything I could about Hebrew and and this Hebrew song in particular. I wanted to to learn and uh, wanted to understand the Moedim. Wanted to understand the feast days and experience them. And so there was no one to teach me. So I called up the only guy in town that could help me. And that was the local rabbi. And uh, called him up, told him my name, who I was, where I was. I was a Christian, all this, that, and the other, and what I wanted to do. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, you're not Jewish? No, sir, not Jewish. You're a Christian. Right, I'm a Christian. And you won't learn these things. Exactly. So he calls me over to his house that night to meet him and his, his wife. And a couple of you may have heard this story, but anyway, when went over there that night. He was an elderly man. He was probably 80 in those days. And this was a long time ago. And uh, invited me into his house. Just intrigued, I think, that somebody who was Christian wanted to learn these Jewish things. 
And his little wife, she was about that tall. And she was about that wide, too. And she, she's kind of standoffish at first. But anyway, I, I told him there's this song taken from Isaiah 62. I want to learn the Hebrew pronunciation. And, and, and so he did. And so I sang the song in Hebrew. So his little wife comes up to me. Her name was Eva. She comes kind of up to me like this. And she says, so I bend down. And she does this. That was beautiful, darling. <laughs> I want you to come to temple and sing it for us over there. Which I did. And so, point is, is that I got to learning some of these things, wanting to understand these things, and I went to my brethren and began to share them with my brethren. In result, and I'll make it a very short story, I moved to Tennessee. <laughs> and that was about ten years ago. Um, I want us to look at the story of Joseph is not just pertaining to the Messiah, but I want us to look at it as also we we are going to be able to identify it with Joseph. And so he's one day, and I'm I'm gonna pause here for just a few minutes, so hang with me, we're gonna eat some lunch. I'm gonna kind of leave you hanging. Um one day <clears throat> Jacob wants Joseph to go check up on his brethren, and that's what Jacob uh, Joseph had been doing according to the scripture. Anytime they were into something they shouldn't be, it was Joseph who was going and letting the father know, which I'm sure endeared him even further to his brethren. But Jacob sends him to check on the flocks, and so he ends up going to Dothan, and when they see him coming, they say, here comes the dreamer, and Judah specifically says, let's kill him. Reuben, somehow or other, talks him out of this, and anyway, Joseph ends up in a cistern. And while Reuben's away golfing, fishing, I don't know what, an Ishmaelite caravan comes down the road and Judah says, you know what? It's not going to profit us anything to kill him. He's our flesh and blood. So let's sell him to these Ishmaelites. So he sold to these Ishmaelites. And uh, later on, what is inferred about when this happened is that obviously Joseph was begging and pleading with his brothers, don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. Because you're, if you'll read the, pas the passages in Scripture later on down in Egypt, when they don't know he who he is, and he's listening in on their conversation. They're talking about all this evil is befalling us because of what we did to him. Did he not plead with us? So obviously Joseph is begging his brethren. I mean, you know what it's like to be betrayed, don't you? You know the hurt and the sting of someone who you thought was close to you, looks you in the eye and says, well, you know what, because you're into all this stuff, I can't have anything to do with you. It's happened to me. It hurts, and you don't understand it. When we walk away, you know, God, all I was doing was sharing the truth. Why can't they see it? Why do they, why do they feel like they have to be alienated from me? And I'm sure that even more so, that's what jo Joseph felt as he's being sold to Ishmaelites and he's carted off to Egypt. Now, while he's down in Egypt, <clears throat> he's bought by a man by the name of Potiphar, who is the chief executioner for Pharaoh. And he brings Joseph into his house. And in time, Joseph is set over all of Potiphar's house. He's running. He's, he's administrating because of his wisdom, because of his giftings that God has given him to the degree that Potiphar, the Bible says, doesn't even know what's going on in his own house to the degree that Potiphar apparently doesn't know that his wife is very, very interested in Joseph. But Joseph, being a virtuous and righteous man, he fends off her advances until one day, you know the story, he has to make a hasty exit. 
when he exits the house, what does he leave behind? Huh? His coat. And that is what she uses as evidence to indict Joseph when Potiphar comes home. Now, Potiphar is the chief executioner. Keep that in mind. But she says, and I'm paraphrasing, look, this Hebrew that you brought into our house has come into Marcus. Look, here's his coat. Now, I'm going to suggest something to you, and I can't prove it, but you can't disprove it. And that is this. I believe that there is something about the coat that identifies Joseph as not just being Joseph, but as being the Hebrew Joseph. Because it's the coat she uses to indict him. She doesn't merely lay an accusation out there, but she uses the coat to indict him. Now, yeah, maybe it was just a coat that Potiphar would have recognized, but I think it's more to it than that. I think it's a coat that identified him as being the Hebrew Joseph. Can you think of anything that might be in his outer coat that would identify him? Well, but that would come before Sinai. Well, then how did Abel know what to sacrifice before Sinai? How did Noah know between clean and unclean? That was before Sinai too. The point is, if it's truth, it's eternal. If it's truth, then it is equivalent to God who has no beginning and who has no end. The truth doesn't have a beginning and an end. It's true. It's eternal. So if it's God's word and that's truth, there was something in his coat, I'm going to suggest to you, that identified him as being the Hebrew Joseph. And this is what is used as evidence to send him to prison falsely accused. Now, Joseph, we understand, is a wise young man. He's no dummy. So I'm going to further suggest to you that when he goes into prison, this is on his mind. You know, twice before, how I looked and what I wore has gotten me in a lot of trouble. Twice now, he's been, if you will, stripped of his outer garments because the first time it incited his brothers to, to jealousy, to a murderous jealousy. And the second time, his outer garment has landed him in prison. I'm going to suggest to you that this does not escape his attention. Furthermore, I'm going to suggest to you that he has to reflect on the fact that, you know, God, all I was trying to do is was share with my brothers what you shared with me. And look what it's got me. Now, I know that Joseph is a virtuous young man, but I'll, I'll put myself in his shoes. If it were me, this is what I'd be thinking. Okay, where did I miss it? Did I just dream all this up? Did you really, did you really share this with me? Did you really say this to me? Or did somehow or another I just get all, all you know, off the track here because this is not what was supposed to happen. You didn't share this part with me. I'm, I'm sure you've never thought things like that, but I have, okay? There have been things that I believe God showed me only to, you know, at some point, you know, we're, we're over here. Well, we're having to move to Tennessee. Things like that. Things I didn't foresee. You understand? Joseph's not a dummy. Do you, do you not, can you not think that perhaps those thoughts crossed his mind? So here's the point. And this is what I'm going to leave you with. And we're going to stop here. We'll pick it up again later on tonight. When he goes into prison, I'll suggest that he has to take into consideration that twice now, his coat, how he looked outwardly, has gotten him in a lot of trouble. I'll suggest to you that he's thinking, has to consider that the fact that he has shown and shared the secret that God gave to him, he shared it with brethren who were not ready to hear what he had to say, got into a lot of trouble. Now, the dreams that Joseph have in the Torah, the accompanying Haftorah, 
includes Amos chapter 3 or portions of Amos 3 where it says, in verse 6 or 7 I believe, Surely the Lord God does nothing except He first reveal His secret unto His servants the prophet. What's the prophet supposed to do? He's supposed to go out and share those secrets so that God's people will know what the Father is up to, right? But does not Paul also say the spirit of the prophet is subject unto the prophet? Doesn't he say that? So, I'm going to leave you with this. Is it possible, and we can look at this several different ways, but is it possible, well, no, no, let me rephrase it. Do you think Joseph's brothers were ready to hear what he had to say the first time he shared it with them? No. And Joseph, being a wise young man, goes into prison, I'm sure, reflecting on this. And so, prison is going to make him wiser. Prison is going to teach him discretion. And by the time he comes out of prison, Joseph is a different fellow. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio.